invite you to turn in the scriptures to Romans chapter 7. This is page 1121 in the church Bible. Romans chapter 7, just reading the first three verses. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and infallible word of God. Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Well, it's all very well to talk about dying to sin. It's all very well to talk about the wages of sin, which is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. But, thinks the Jew at this point in the discussion, what about the law? Where does that leave the law? If the law was given to Moses and it was written on tablets of stone by the very finger of God, as it were, then isn't saying that we are dead to sin, also saying that we have died to the law. Well, Paul, in his own inimitable way, is anticipating this very objection from his Jewish audience, and to put it in its most provocative form, Paul is saying that we have indeed died to the law. He'll say it explicitly in verse 4. You also have died to the law. Of course, we will have to qualify and explain what that means, and especially what it doesn't mean. But Paul is actually saying that very thing. We have died to the law in such a way that the law does not and cannot condemn us any longer. Now, in the beginning of chapter 7, Paul is really going back to what he said in chapter 6, verse 14, where he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And as you might imagine, that statement requires a fair bit of explanation. Sin has a strange relationship to the law as we'll see in the rest of chapter 7. In one way, it's easy to understand what sin is. It's a violation of God's law. Doing what God forbids, or not doing what God commands. That's the definition of sin. So in some way, in many ways, they are the opposite of each other. But they do actually, we actually find ourselves in the same boat with regard to both of them. The law, on the one hand, is holy, just, and good, as Paul says in verse 12 of this chapter. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong is us. And sin 
Our sin makes the law into our condemning enemy apart from Christ. If we didn't sin, the law wouldn't accuse us. Paul's told us in chapter 6 that we're no longer under sin's dominion if we are in Christ. In chapter 7, Paul's going to tell us that we're no longer under the law's dominion with regard to condemnation either. The law no longer defines our relationship to God. It's not the most basic thing in terms of our relationship to God. How do we know whether the law defines our relationship to God or whether grace does? Well, theologically speaking, grace is what defines our relationship to God now. But people are either related to God by the law's condemnation or by God's saving grace. There aren't any other options. So how do we know whether we have made the transition between being under the law in terms of its condemnation to being under grace? A guy named Ray Stedman helps us out here with four markers that indicate the status of those who are still under the law's condemnation. And they're not comprehensive, they're only suggestive, but they are helpful. First, we're proud of our achievements. We might think that our achievement, achievements mean that we have measured up to the right standard. But what is usually happening if we're exhibiting pride of achievements is that it's a mask to keep people from seeing our failures. Secondly, we're overly critical of others. This is often merely a diversionary tactic designed to keep people from seeing our failures. Thirdly, the reverse of boasting is the reluctance to admit our own failures. James Boyce says something quite profound about this. He says that if we were, if we were not under the law but under grace, then we would not deny breaking a standard, the validity of which, as condemning, we do not recognize. In other words, if we're under grace and the law no longer has that kind of dominion over us, we will not care whether others notice our failures or not. Fourthly, if we suffer from depression, discouragement, defeat, that can be a sign that we're still under law and not under grace. Well, if someone is still under the law, what's the solution? The solution is startling. Paul says the solution is death. Death is the solution. Now, he's not talking about physical death here, of course. Still less of suicide. He's talking about dying to sin and therefore also dying to the law's dominion. And by law's dominion here, again, we mean the law's condemning power, or if you want to put it in theological terms, the law as the covenant of works. That's the point of the illustration that Paul's using here about marriage. 
The illustration is simplicity itself, if you consider it by itself. But applying it in the middle of Paul's argument is not simple at all. But let's start with the simple. Marriage, divorce, or marriage after death is not the point of Paul's bringing in this illustration, even though it will have implications for those subjects. But Paul is bringing in the illustration to prove that a death is needed to ensure that we are under grace and not under law. So Paul's illustration, as we've said, it's simple. A woman is married to a man and is therefore bound to that man as long as they both live. And he says at the beginning that he's talking to those who know the law. In other words, they have better than a passing acquaintance with the law. They've studied it. Which law, we might ask? Biblical law. Roman law read very differently on this point than what Paul is saying. Other law might be similar to biblical law on this particular issue, but the biblical law is primarily in view here. And the illustration is one that Paul assumes that his readers already know. Do you not know, brothers? Every time Paul says that, he's talking about something that he expects his readers already know about. And the illustration consists of the simple observation that marriage is binding until the death of either the man or the woman. Death is what frees her from the law of marriage, that she's bound to that one man. Either either death will free her from that marriage, either her death or his death. It doesn't really matter which death occurs. It breaks the bond of matrimony. Till death do us part, as most of us have probably said who are married. And this fact is important for understanding what might otherwise be quite puzzling in relating these verses to what follows in verses 4 to 6. Death is what parts husband and wife. If she has a relationship with another man while her husband's still alive, then she's an adulteress. But if the husband dies, she's free from the law binding her to her first husband. She's free to marry again if she wants after her first husband has died. Now, this is something that we all know. Paul is not bringing up here the question of divorce. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about death as being what divides husband from wife. And the point of the illustration then has to do with our relationship to the law. Being under law, as Paul would say in chapter 6, means being under its condemnation, being still under the sanctions of the covenant of works, still under its judicial condemnation. And the only thing that will free us from being under that law is our own death to that law. Once we die to the law, the law will never condemn us again. And if we have died to sin, we must also be dead to the law. And that is what Paul is telling us needs to be true for us to be under grace. An illustration. We need an illustration to illustrate Paul's illustration. Might be helpful here. Say a policeman is pursuing a suspect in a car chase. 
The suspect is wanted in a case of armed robbery, and during the course of this car chase, the suspect plows into a tree and dies in the car crash. The policeman at this point is not going to continue to press charges against the suspect, is he? There will not be a court case. The suspect is freed from obedience to any man-made law at this point, isn't he? He is unable to fulfill any law being dead. In the same way, if a woman is married to a man and the man dies, there is no longer that bond between husband and wife, and the wife is free to make a new marriage bond. So if we apply the analogy, and we aren't really understanding what Paul's trying to do here, we could try to make the illustration say something that it shouldn't. If we try to make it an allegory, for example, we'll be barking up the wrong tree. Illustrations of this go like this. If we say that we're, we're the woman, the law is our first husband, and Christ is the second husband, the analogy falls apart because in the illustration, the husband dies, but it, Paul, when Paul applies it to us in verse 4, we're the ones who died. But remember, that's precisely the point. It doesn't matter which spouse dies, the remaining person is free. And Paul can't very well say that the law died, can he? That wouldn't make any sense. And since the kind of death Paul is talking about is not actually a physical death, then he can make the analogy hold. Here's how it actually works. Yes, we were under the law, the condemning power of the law. We're in a similar position to the law that the woman was to her first husband. But now a death has occurred, and we are now free to marry Christ. What is our death to the law? It's the same death, the exact same death as our death to sin. This is the fundamental insight of Martin Luther on this passage. Our death to sin also makes us dead to the condemning power of the law. We're no longer under its yoke, such that we have to obey it in order to obtain God's favor. God's favor is given to his children as a free gift. It does not come through the observance of the law, at least not our observance of the law. So our death to sin and our death to law is exactly the same thing as becoming alive to God and entering his service by his grace. This is a true toggle switch. Either the switch is pointed at sin, just as a woman might be trapped in an abusive marriage where the husband beats her and treats her like a doormat or the switch is pointed at Christ where we have the best possible husband understanding self-sacrificing loving kind and gracious so now we must make sure that we understand what is meant by dead to the law Paul does not mean that we therefore have no relationship to the law whatsoever. That the law is somehow irrelevant to the Christian walk. 
That is absolutely not what he is saying. He doesn't mean that we ignore the law in our Christian walk. He doesn't mean that we have nothing more to do with the law. He doesn't mean that the law is irrelevant to the Christian. He means the law is no longer our master or the thing condemning us. It no longer condemns us because in that sense we are dead to it. I think those who have grown up maybe in the Reformed tradition and have grown up reciting the Ten Commandments and looking at the Catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments can sometimes feel maybe a little bit uncomfortable with what verse 4 says. You also have died to the law. But it means the law no longer condemns us. And you know what that means for the Christian walk? No more fear. What is the worst possible thing that could happen to any human being? Well, it's being judged by the law, found to be guilty, and thrown into hell for all eternity. That is the worst thing. And that worst thing for the person that God lays hold of by his grace is no longer possible. It's off the table. So if the worst possible thing is now gone, why would we need to fear anything else? It also means that the person under grace has the following four characteristics. The opposite of what we saw was characterizing the person still under law. The person under grace has these characteristics. These are suggestive, not comprehensive. They give God the glory for any achievements. We don't sing our own praises. Instead, we know God gave us everything we have. Everything. It's all a gift. What do we have, Paul would say in other places, what do we have that we did not receive? Is there anything at all? It's a rhetorical question, the answer to which is no, of course not. There's nothing we have that we did not receive. Two, we build up other people. And we're not jealous when somebody else does well. We freely acknowledge God's gifts to others rather than being jealous of those gifts. We rejoice that they're being used in the kingdom of God. And that's a good thing. We admit our own failures, thirdly, as the opposite side of the coin from not boasting. We're all human and all humans make mistakes. It's not our job to point out others' mistakes unless we have a teaching authority over that other person. And even then, it should be in the context of love and care. And four, we have a joy in the Christian walk that is obvious to people who know us because that fear is gone. Because grace is what defines our relationship to God 
and therefore should also define our relationship to one another. We have to give each other space, as it were, and excuse others' mistakes, especially if they involve us. We have to be of a fundamentally forgiving mindset. And that's not a new way of imposing law. That's saying that grace rules. That the grace overcomes our own legalistic hearts because the fact is, we don't like being in people's debt. And that is a legalistic tendency in our hearts. Not to be indebted, We're entirely indebted. If everything we have comes from God, there isn't anything for which we are not indebted to God. And that's hard for the sin nature to take, isn't it? Can't I hold on to anything that's mine? That I can say I did this? That I can say it comes from me? Nope. Nothing. And therefore, it is all praise to God. As we remember the triumph of grace at the time of the Reformation, the triumph of grace in the doctrine of justification, the triumph of grace over legalism that was present in the Roman Catholic Church, We celebrate grace as the fundamental principle of God's relationship to us. And it's grace that will lead us home. Let us pray.